Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the AMPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Katie McGraw, a physical therapist, and I serve on the DDSIG podcast team. I'm excited to be here today again with Nora Fritz, Associate Professor in the Physical Therapy Program in the Department of Neurology at Wayne State University, as well as the Director of Neuroimaging and Neuro Rehabilitation Laboratory. Welcome, Nora. And again, welcome back. It's so wonderful to have you on our podcast again. Thank you. And thanks for the invitation to join you today. Tell us a little bit about yourself for the listeners who haven't had the pleasure of listening to your prior podcast. Well, I am also a physical therapist and board certified in neurologic physical therapy. I started the neuroimaging and neurorehabilitation lab uh, just over seven years ago here at Wayne State University. And we study broadly how changes in cognition impact motor performance and motor recovery in people who have neurodegenerative diseases. So over the last seven years, we've really studied mainly multiple sclerosis and Huntington's disease, and we've come at it from a variety of different angles. But we really are interested not only in the development of new outcomes to measure symptoms that are important to these individuals, but also in the development of novel uh, rehabilitation paradigms to address common symptoms. So today, I know that you wanted to focus on more specifically kind of your research in backwards walking and the role of cognition, right, in detecting fallers, um, particular patients with MS. Yeah, I'm happy to speak with you about that. So why don't you just give us kind of an, an overview before we kind of dive into some of the details on the recent research that you published? Sure. So I guess thinking back to when I was a graduate student a hundred years ago, now it feels like um, we did a study at that time where we looked at the difference between forward and backward walking in older adults. And we looked not only at, you know, young and middle-aged adults, but also at frail and non-frail older adults and just had them walking over an electronic walkway. And what we were able to show is that backward walking was better able to differentiate the fallers from the non-fallers in this older adult group. And it also differentiated the older adults from the young and the middle-aged adults. And we could even come to a cut point as far as what speed of backward walking was needed to differentiate fallers from non-fallers. So fast forward years from that, um, in my own lab, we are starting to try to understand, you know, this really multifactorial nature of falls. It's a pretty complicated thing to think about. And we were finding that there's not really one single tool that's very good at deciding whether someone's going to fall or not. And what we most commonly use in the clinic is a combination of tests or those tests that have you know, so-called cut points for fall risk, like the Berg balance scale or the timed up and go or these kinds of tests, but they all really assess balance and forward walking. And we are finding anecdotally from asking patients to do it in our lab, that backward walking was a lot more challenging, especially for patients who uh, might already have mobility impairments. And even for patients who didn't necessarily look like they had much mobility impairment in the forward direction. 
And so I had a graduate student in the lab at the time. She's now graduated and left us, but um, Erin Edwards is her name. And she's the first author on many of these papers that we're going to speak about today. Um, But we started to think about the idea that maybe backward walking might capture multiple domains that are important for falling. So maybe it's important to know something about proprioception, which we rely more heavily on in the backward direction when we can't use our vision. And maybe it's important for cognition or it taps into cognitive processes that might be impaired in patient populations. And maybe it can tell us something about the underlying neural structures and their integrity in in our patient population. And so we started trying to understand this a little bit more with the data that we had available to us during the COVID-19 lockdown. And so we were able to, to show from our past data that indeed backward walking better differentiates fallers from non-fallers and people with multiple sclerosis in a retrospective fall data set. So when they tell us whether they've fallen or not, and then to, in an exploratory analysis, we can show the same finding in prospective fall reporting. It's just a much smaller sample. That was really exciting for us. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's because, I mean, backwards walking is likely assessed. Like most of our viewers do look at it Mm -hmm. if you're doing something like the FGA. Um, Or just kind of just your kind of gait skill assessment, but trying to be more objective about measuring it. And then to what you're saying, trying to understand, well, what are the factors that are influencing backwards walking? So this is um, kind of an obvious thing that people have to do. And a lot of falls happen in this direction, but it's interesting that your work is kind of really giving us a framework. It sounds like to be able to be a bit more objective and clear in the assessment and then kind of what, what it could mean. So I'm curious though, how you guys do assess the backwards walking, like if you were doing it across your studies. Yeah. So in the data set that we were looking at for this first paper, people had walked across a gate right electronic gate mat. And so we had a whole host of spatial and temporal parameters for both forward and backward walking. And what we did in the analysis actually was, um, it's called a discriminative function analysis. And my statistician had to teach me about this because I didn't know about it. But um, (laughs) essentially what it does is pit all these variables against one another and look for the strongest unique predictor. So which of the variables is the strongest at predicting whether uh, what a person belongs in the faller or the non-faller group? And to our great uh, surprise, maybe, and uh, pleasure, it was backward walking velocity. So the one that you could measure the easiest in a clinical setting is actually the one that came out on top for both retrospective and prospective fallers. So I was thrilled with that. So the initial time it was measured with the gate right, moving forward, we measure not only with the gate right, uh, but also just with a stopwatch. So the velocity kind of rose to the top in terms of, yeah, these, these, whether it's step length, whether it's step symmetry, double stance time, it's like, we don't, not that we don't have to care about it. So that kind of begs the question about, okay, I get a number. So then what did you guys come up with some cutoffs to understand risk? So we started to look at cut points, but really we didn't have a big enough sample to be 
doing that. And so we decided that we honestly care more about the prospective falling than the retrospective falling. So right now, what we're doing is with some funding from the consortium of MS centers and then some new funding that we've just gotten from the National Institute of Health, we're looking not only at the reliability of backward walking velocity across a one-week time period, so kind of trying to establish some of the psychometrics of backward walking, but also at its predictive validity for predicting prospective falls over a six-month period. And so I think the findings from that study, which are forthcoming, uh, will be really telling as far as um, understanding whether there are actually cut points for fall prediction. And when you say perspective, are you enrolling people who have not fallen, have no history of falls? No, by prospective, I mean, we are following them beyond the testing period. So they'll come into our lab and then we will follow them for out for six months and they'll report falls to us over that time, rather than having them recall the falls that they may have already had. And I guess I often wonder about this, someone who's coming in with some neurological condition like MS and trying to predict if they're going to fall, like when is that first fall? Right. Like how can we stay ahead so that we, in theory, right. We don't know if we're pushing the first fall out for longer. Um, but I was wondering if in some, in your perspective studies, if, if you enroll people who don't fall, um, and then kind of measure people out six months, those who fall or who, who don't fall, but have no history of falling, is there any way to look at the data to understand predictive quality for like that first fall? So we will be able to look at that because we are intentionally recruiting across the disease spectrum for this particular study. Uh, So we'll have individuals who have a normal neurological score on their expanded disability status scale score, all the way up to individuals who use bilateral support for walking. And we thought it was important to really capture the spectrum of disability in order to determine reliability of the measure um, and stability of the measure. But I, I see your point. Certainly, it would be quite interesting because we want to understand when are people at risk for falling. Right now, the best predictor of whether someone's going to fall is if they've already fallen. And it's exactly as you've said, what about people who haven't fallen yet? And so that that definitely will be an analysis that we will look at for those individuals who have yet to fall when they enroll in the study. Um, And then comparing forward and backward walking velocities, because I think most of us do get a 10 meter forward speed. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if we reversed it and started to do the 10 meter backwards, Have you seen any patterns between looking at both? Like if both are slow, is that more of a risk versus someone who has a kind of normal forward speed, but slow um, backward speed? I mean, I know myself, like this is on the side clinical. I've actually done, looked at kind of a ratio to see and, and kind of seen patterns over the years, but you know, someone doubles their time. Like to me, that is kind of a flag, but I don't have any research to point to it. So just curious how you guys are looking at that or have the potential to. Yeah, it's a great suggestion. Um, We haven't done a ratio. I think it's a good idea. One of the things we did look at in our prior study was the speed of the forward walking. So the the instruction for the speed of the forward walking. Um, So we typically ask people to walk as fast as they can. And I found in my own work that it sort of limits the variability that can be introduced by having like, quote unquote, a bad day. 
so you're feeling more fatigued, it's cold outside, whatever the you know variable is. Typically, when we ask people to walk as fast as they can, they give it their best effort. And then we tend to see a little bit more stability across it and less likely to see an artificial change in their walking. So we actually looked at fast forward walking compared to a comfortable pace in backward walking. Um, We didn't ask people to walk as fast as they could backward in that first study because we were concerned about safety initially. But now in the present study, we are doing both comfortable and fast backward walking. And I haven't analyzed the data yet, but from the participants that I've been working with, I don't see a huge difference, honestly, in fast versus comfortable backward walking. That remains to be analyzed for sure, but we are looking at whether the speed makes a difference. And I think that ratio or maybe the ability to change from comfortable pace to fast pace might be important. Yeah. Again, I think it just goes back to this uh, view of my clinical practice, it's like speed modulation, of course, like I look at that in forward walking, but you know, why haven't I assessed that backwards? It's like, if they look unsteady or they're slower, it's like impaired. <laughs> and then that seemed kind of like good enough, at least for the measures we're using. So yeah, I, I, we look forward to having you on again for their oh, good. <laughs> and you have this information. So um, let's pull in the work then that you're doing in relation to the cognition. How are you, what are you looking into more specifically into kind of layering into your work for the backwards walking? Yeah. So we know that there are certain domains that are um, impacted more in people with MS compared to others. And so we were interested in understanding, you know, whether there was a relationship between declines in those areas and backward walking performance. One of the three tests that is used in this brief cognitive battery that's given to most people with MS is a test called the brief visual spatial memory test. And it's supposed to examine visual spatial memory. And so my general thought about this was, you know, if you have a better understanding of your environment around you and you can sort of remember where things are in space you might feel more confident about walking backwards because you might not think you're going to run into something or you know where things are in space. Um, In the same way that having a good understanding of where your body is in space from a proprioceptive standpoint, um, you may feel more confident with walking backwards when you can't rely on your vision. So again, we don't know that for sure. So we're examining this idea that visual spatial memory or even spatial navigation might be important for walking backward. And we know that visual spatial memory is impaired in many people who have multiple sclerosis. And so that's one of the domains we're looking at. We're also looking at other commonly impaired domains like information processing speed and uh, working memory and, and several others. We do have a collaborator on the project who is a cognitive psychologist, and she developed a virtual water maze task that's done with a joystick. Um, and so people will navigate through a virtual environment and try to find hidden platforms in a like pool of water. And so that's another area that we're kind of, this is a spatial navigation task that we've added to the study to examine cognition in that regard and their ability to kind of learn over the course of trials. I mean, I think in the clinic, 
we can recognize if there's kind of a cognitive component to someone's fall risk or kind of history of falling, right? Like attention, safety, judgment, or even information processing. I mean, we can kind of see some of that effect, right? If someone needs simplification um, of the task or really has trouble repeating kind of a demonstrated simple movement, right? These are kind of all flags. You know, I don't readily assess the visual spatial skills um, kind of beyond a screening for a MOCA, do you think as a phys- like physical therapist, are there particular cognitive skills that you think are important to assess that have kind of a known um, kind of moderator or heightened risk for falling? We don't know yet, right? So I think you're spot on as far as assessing attention and, um, you know, a dividing of attention, maybe with like a trails B or something like that. But right now, we don't know which of these domains might be most related to backward walking. We have some indication of it, and we have a paper that we're working on right now that hopefully will be coming out in the next year here. But um, we don't know for sure. And so I think, you know, the, the general recommendation right now is that if you only have time for five minutes of cognitive testing in a patient with MS, you should do the symbol digit modalities test. Uh, which is a test of information processing speed. But what we don't know is how that might correlate with fall risk. And so I think that remains to be seen. I'm sure someone has looked at its relation to retrospective falls, but how it might be related to prospective falls, I'm not I'm not sure. So I think this is still an area where we're trying to understand, you know, what are the cognitive components that are important for falling? And more than likely it's many cognitive components. But what we're proposing is that, you know, backward walking could be a nice additive to a clinical exam that might probe underlying cognitive processes, underlying proprioceptive processes, kind of capturing multiple domains that are important for fall risk. No, it's helpful in kind of a busy clinic environment when you have someone who's coming in who's really complex history and you're you know, trying to get through your 60 minutes evaluation, um, but, and trying to measure things that kind of help guide even kind of the launch into the second visit, but something like backwards walking, if it could have the potential to kind of start to screen and prioritize what you want to look at either in that visit or the next visit. What we do know right now is we have a paper that has been accepted for publication, but I don't believe has been published in print yet, um, that shows that cognitive functioning, at least the visual spatial memory and the information processing speed components measured by this brief visual spatial test in the SDMT that I talked about earlier, does not moderate the relationship between backward walking and falls. So that relationship exists, even if there are changes in cognitive functioning or not, which is sort of interesting. So it suggests that there are pieces of the puzzle, but it doesn't depend on cognition being impaired for backward walking to relate to fall risk. So I think that is interesting too, to consider. So whether or not you have time to assess cognition in a standardized way in the clinic, if you can add two minutes of backward walking, then that might be enough to see it. And did you also find in some of your papers that the disease severity made the backwards walking test more sensitive or less sensitive? And I know sometimes you guys added in even a dual task. Maybe you can speak to that because I'm sure our listeners are thinking through like, 
is this the cutoffs probably not are going to be the same across? I know they don't exist, but just kind of speaking yeah. to how this test may be sensitive or you'd have to adjust for it depending on the disease severity. Yeah, absolutely. So of course, this only in ambulatory folks with MS, right? Like we haven't tested, we obviously haven't tested this in those individuals who are no longer ambulatory. Um, so the cut point is always at, you know, six for the PDDS or six and a half for the EDSS. But we did include um, disease severity in that model I was talking about where you throw everything in and what's the top thing that comes out. That was part of the modeling and still backward walking velocity comes out on top. So independent of this disease disease severity or including disease severity, it's still the best predictor of whether someone's going to fall or not, even when disease severity is, is one of the factors to be included. So that's exciting. As to cut points, that'll be something we look at in the current study, whether there is differences in the psychometrics or in our ability to to look at cut points, whether someone's in lower disease severity versus higher disease severity. Uh, To your point about dual tasking, of course, I am a big proponent of of dual tasking. Um, So we, of course, looked at um, dual tasking during backward walking compared to dual tasking and forward walking. And what we show is that both backward walking and backward walking with a dual task better predict the fallers than forward walking or forward walking with a dual task. Um, so it's nice when everything sort of agrees with itself. <laughs> and in that case, we did look at a higher and lower disease uh, severity and the relationship holds across the disease spectrum, which is great. Um, although the lower disease folks tended to look more similar to the healthy controls, but they still perform a little bit worse than the healthy controls in backward walking compared to forward walking. Yeah. I feel like backward walking just keeps kind of rising to the top. You know, you're kind of throwing everything in and and seeing, is it really about the backwards walking? And, you know, it's. Yeah. And so one of the things like the next question then that we started thinking about is like, okay, well, why is it different from forward walking? Right. Shouldn't it be the same like neural mechanism or the same neural networks controlling backward walking? And it turns out that it might be a more complicated question than we initially thought. So there's one human study that I'm uh, aware of and several preclinical studies that suggest that there's actually different neural networks controlling forward walking compared to backward walking. And so our current study that we're doing, we're actually doing a, a lot of brain imaging to look at underlying neural pathways that might be important for backward walking. But it also led us to ask the question, well, if there's different neural networks, does that mean that training backward walking would result in something different than training forward walking? And so that's another trial that's ongoing in our lab right now funded by the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, will be doing a randomized controlled trial comparing forward to backward walking training in, in people who have gait difficulties and or, and or a history of falls in MS. So sometimes the patients who I have doing backward walking, if I'm, if I'm working specifically and training that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I usually you know, one of my lines, um, to encourage them to keep at it is if we practice the harder thing and the easier things get easier. And so backwards walking is the hardest thing for you right now versus sideways versus forward. 
even some of the kind of the obstacle navigation. Am I wrong in thinking, thinking that, like from what you've just shared, right? If there are different neural networks, do you think that there is an effect where you practice the backward walking or kind of multi-directional walking that walking in general should get easier? So, you know, I, I've thought a lot about this and I think, you know, if we think about task specific training, we should think that training forward walking makes forward walking easier. Training backward walking makes backward walking easier. But I do think you're right that there could be some carryover, especially since we do most of our walking in forward walking. The thing we talk, I talk about a lot with potential participants in the study is that you know, we do a lot of backward stepping in our day, but we don't do sustained backward walking. So it's this very novel task that your body is not familiar with doing. And it takes some time for your brain to adapt to doing this new task. But that should translate, we hope, to a better ability to navigate in tight spaces, to back up to a chair, to open a door, which requires backward stepping. So I think you're right that practicing these hard kind of tasks like multi-directional stepping or backward walking or really um, forcing an individual who might be really reliant on their vision to use other systems can have a positive effect in other parts of their life. So the other piece of your research, which I want to talk about, and I guess I can't help but think about it, is your work with the cerebellum. I think that there's a role for adaptation, right? In helping people improve their flexibility and their walking and their balance and stability. But maybe we could dive into kind of what your research is looking at more specifically in the role of cerebellar impairments in MS and in walking. Yeah, absolutely. We are quite interested in understanding uh, how the cerebellum might relate to backward walking because of the cerebellum's role, not only in moderating movement and modifying movement online, but also in its role in cognition. So some of our recent work has looked at this idea that the cerebellum is important not only for motor function, but also for cognitive functioning in in healthy adults and also in persons with MS. And we've been able to show that specifically in, in patients with MS, there are declines in volume in the uh, superior cerebellar peduncle of the cerebellum, which is the primary output of the cerebellum. And we think that that could be important as it relates to their, their mobility. And then the other paper that we've been looking at in cerebellar, this was more of like a commentary, but um, a question that I keep asking over time is, we don't regularly screen for cerebellar dysfunction in patients with MS. So as clinicians, I feel like we recognize it when we see it, uh, but we're not regularly assessing it in a standardized way. Like we don't do an ICARS on everyone. We're not doing the Sarah on people. And whether or not they have cerebellar involvement could in fact change how you prescribe their rehab or what learning mechanisms they're most likely to benefit from. And so in this paper, we're just kind of proposing this idea that it's probably really important in rehab trials moving forward 
to understand if people do have cerebellar dysfunction because it could change their responsiveness to whatever the intervention is. I'm not here to suggest that there's one best way to assess cerebellar dysfunction. I think we still need to figure out what that might be. And so if anyone listening has an idea, please email me (laughs) and we can talk about it. Well, that was actually one of the questions I had kind of prepped for you. I was like, how should I be assessing cerebellar dysfunction in my patients with MS? But beyond kind of like the typical observation, right? Kind of seeing someone who has ataxia or kind of looking at their ocular motor um, control, things like that. But um, you've also kind of thrown out some other outcomes that at least are a good starting point for someone who is maybe is not familiar with some other ones. But I guess what I want to know is if we're following patients for a long time and trying to understand, is our intervention therapeutic? Is it working? You know, how should we be approaching or trying to incorporate the role of the potential or possible cerebellar deficits? It's a really good question. Um, I think that MS is a very challenging disease because while a patient might have cerebellar deficits clinically, they might also have a lot of other deficits that impact other systems that are important for balance or mobility Mm -hmm. or learning. So for example, you know, if in a person with a pure cerebellar dysfunction, we, my co-author on the paper that I was um, speaking about maybe would suggest that we um, avoid adaptation learning, which is um, driven by the cerebellum. And so that may not work as effectively in our patient with a pure cerebellar dysfunction. Um, And instead use another kind of learning like uh, reinforcement learning or something like this. But those paradigms also require an intact dorsal column medial lemniscus system, and that can be impaired in patients with MS. And so I think as clinicians, it's our challenging job to assess the whole person and then try to suit the intervention to their particular needs. I think that we're really early in understanding uh, more about cerebellar dysfunction in patients with MS. And a first step is trying to just assess whether people have it or not, and then determine if it makes a difference on our rehab outcomes. Um, so I think that's where we are right now. I'm not sure we're ready for clinical recommendations at this particular point. Well, I do associate you with frameworks just because of the work <laughs> you did in dual tasking. And I still think of the grid and um, and so I see one evolving here, hopefully, um, and how to approach assessing, you know, the gait skill of backwards walking and kind of assessing the cerebellum, kind of the influence of that. So again, it's going to be really great to have you back on. You're going to have so, so Thank much to you. share. I that. hope we can deliver. <laughs> yeah, we'll be the first, first to break the news, hopefully. <laughs> so I guess maybe as a wrap up, maybe you could share how this might be applied in the clinic tomorrow. Like if someone's listening to this on their way to work or the night before they have a patient coming in with MS, what is it that you're hoping that they try or approach differently? So my hope is that a listener will consider adding backward walking velocity to their evaluation, not just of patients with MS, but all of their neuro patients. Um, and just start to get a sense of whether this is an area where they can see deficits in their 
patient that they maybe couldn't see in the forward direction and whether it uncovers any potential avenues for treatment. So I think that's the biggest take home. That's great. I know you've changed the way that I'm going to look at backwards walking, (laughs) but thank you so much, Nora. It has been a real pleasure to be able to talk to you today and spend some time hearing about kind of the latest in your research and the endeavors and all the great work that you guys are doing where you are at Wayne State. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So we always ask what people like to do in their free time when they're not doing all the amazing work that they've shared with us. (laughs) So we'd love to know how you like to have fun. Well, it's fall in Detroit right now. So that's the best season in my opinion. Uh, So I'm spending lots of time outside with my kids and picking pumpkins and decorating for Halloween and all of those sorts of things. They take up most of my free time, (laughs) to be quite honest with you. (laughs) Um, So my weekends are spent driving to dance classes and attending soccer games, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. You're in good company. I'm in the same boat, but it's fun. It kind of brings you back. It's like, you get to be a kid again, right? You're going to do everything that you did. Um, You just have to plan it now. You don't just (laughs) (laughs) be home for nap. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again, Nora. Thank you so much. Good to see you guys. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guest today too, Nora Fritz. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. This podcast was edited and produced by the DDSIG podcast team, which includes Carm Padgett, Sarah Zoller, Chris Burke, Carly Havard, Jeffrey Smith, Ken Monaco, and I'm Katie McGraw. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. There are bloopers, by the way. Okay. <laughs> the editing pressure is on. <laughs> They're all like, if you need someone to guard, Nora can do it. <laughs> and then I'm always like, is that what I sound like? I can't believe I have friends. That's horrible. <laughs>